Hello and welcome to another COVID-19 law, law and policy briefing presented by Public Health Law Watch, an initiative of the George Consortium in association with the Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple University and the Network for Public Health Law and Change Lab Solutions. We're here to provide expert legal analysis during the COVID-19 pandemic and hopefully to answer some of your questions. For more information about the legal response to COVID, please check out our report, Assessing Legal Responses to COVID-19 at www covid19policyplaybook.org. Today's show is preemption, public health, and equity in the time of COVID-19. We're going to talk about how this legal doctrine called preemption has been impacting the COVID response. I'm Sarah Deguia, CEO of Change Lab Solutions, a nonprofit organization that works across the nation to advance equitable laws and policies to ensure healthy lives for all. We're an interdisciplinary team of lawyers, planners, analysts, and other professionals who work with communities, governments, and institutions to help help them create thriving just communities. Joining me today are my colleagues at Change Lab Solutions, Sabrina Adler, our Vice President of Law, who works on our legal strategy across the organization and has worked on issues on childcare and early childhood, commercial tobacco control and preemption. And we're joined by our friend and collaborator, uh, Kim Haddow, who is the founder of Local Solutions Support Center, a national hub that connects, coordinates and creates efforts to counter state preemption and strengthen local democracy. Kim has worked as a reporter and news director of an all-news radio station, a media consultant for public, excuse me, for political candidates and causes, and as a strategic media consultant for nonprofit organizations. Welcome, Sabrina and Kim. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Sabrina, let me start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about what preemption is, why it's important, and how it affects public health and equity? Sure. Thanks, Sarah, and glad to be here. As many of the folks listening to this probably know, preemption Preemption is a legal doctrine, and it's one that allows a higher level of government to limit or, in some cases, eliminate the power of a lower level of government to regulate around a specific issue. So according to the U.S. Constitution, federal law always takes precedence over state and local law. And similarly, if local law conflicts with state law, then the state law would take precedence generally in that, in that case. So depending on the type of preemption, it can result in lower level governments being prevented from passing any laws on a certain topic topic or in a policy realm, or it can be more specific and around passing certain types of laws within that realm. Um, when it comes to preemption and its relationship with equity, I know we're going to explore that theme throughout the briefing. So I'll just, as a starting point, say that it's, it's preemption is simply a legal tool. It's not inherently adversarial to public health or equity or good governance. And there are instances in which state and local governments enact harmful policies or fail to address systemic injustices, and then preemption can be used as a, as a target tool to counter those actions and promote fairness and equity. So for example, here in California, we see that play out in the housing space where the legislature preempts some local action with the goal of producing more affordable housing. But more recently, the vast majority of state level preemption we're seeing is really problematic and likely to harm health and make inequities work. And I'm going to let Ken dig a little bit more into that. And we both will, I think, over the over the course of this conversation about how problematic that's been and what we've seen of late. Yeah, Kim, can you share what you've been finding in terms of these shifts that have been happening across the nation before COVID-19 and then how it's directly affected state and localities' ability to respond to COVID? Sure. So, you know, 
what we are looking at now and have been looking at it for over the past decade for the last 11, 12 years is really what we call new preemption, where it is a tool, as Serena said, but it's now being used aggressively to limit local policy making, particularly in areas that against racial equity, economic equity. It's being used across a much broader of policy areas than we've ever seen. Everything from, you know, tech technology to environmental protection to working, you know, conditions of employment. Um, and so we we have seen it used aggressively. We have seen it used in the last decade with increasing punishments, both for cities and for elected officials. And it's incredibly uh, broad and sweeping. So these aren't narrow applied laws. These are, we want to get local governments out of the business of business regulable. It's being driven traditionally by industry, but doesn't like to be regulated. It's also being driven um, by, as, as Sabrina said, folks who don't want, anti who don't want regulation right? And who think that cities go too far in regulating. And unfortunately, the way that works out and plays out is that often this preemption is put in by letters that are overwhelmingly white and male. Um, and in a consequence, particularly on cities that are led by black and brown leaders. And so this has a disproportionate effect on people of color, women and workers' wage jobs. And just for example, I mean, think about these policies that were in place before the pandemic that, and who, what population would have helped and now who they have hurt because they weren't when COVID hit. So we're looking at paid sick days, which is now in 23 states. We're looking at minimum wage where, uh, you know, localities have had to go at, in and figure out how to give more money to frontline workers and emergency and essential workers. We're looking at broadband. I mean, if you wanted to look at, at a preemption, which is in place in 22, that had an immediate and direct negative effect, particularly on people of color, people of low and low wage income brackets, uh, it's broadband. No telemedicine, you know, no school, no work, you know, that lack of connectivity disproportionately and directly affects, you know, those marginalized communities. You know, and and so we are looking at being forced to start from behind because they were already prohibited from uh, from from working in these policy realms. That's very troubling to to say the least, particularly because COVID has had such a disproportionate impact on people of color. Sabrina, can you talk a little bit more about what we have seen in response to over the last year on um, state and local governments and how they've actually grappled to respond to COVID? Sure. So to begin with, I want to just point out that in the early days of the pandemic, much of the state level preemption that we were seeing was coming in the form of executive orders from governors because that's how policymaking was happening. It was an emergency and it was happening quickly. Now we're seeing more legislative action. I think Kim is going to touch a little bit about uh, on what that looks like. But uh, to go back to what, what we've seen over the past year or so. So there are three forms of preemption. We've seen all of them play out um, in this response. So in some states, we've, we've seen governors that issued statewide stay-at-home orders that allow local governments to implement additional restrictions and go further. So creating this regulatory floor, meaning it wasn't preventing sort of um, localization of, of what should happen as well and, and from and localities from taking additional action. So take Louisiana, for example, where the governor specifically allowed New Orleans, the, the biggest city there, and one that's also home to the state's largest black population to lift and impose its own restrictions based on what was happening on 
the ground there. But I would say that approach, that collaborative approach has not at all been the norm. There are many more states, Arizona, Florida, Georgia, Mississippi, South Carolina, it could go on, um, among others, where the statewide stay-at-home orders established a, a ceiling instead. And so they actually prevented local governments from imposing stricter, stricter requirements. So in Arizona, for example, the governor issued an executive order that prohibited any county, city, or town from issuing any order or regulation that restricted people from leaving their home due to the public health emergency. And in Texas, we similarly saw that the attorney general actually sued to stop El Paso County, Travis County, Austin, other governments from imposing shutdown orders, masking orders, etc. In other states, there were no nothing happening at the state level, so no statewide home statewide state home orders at all. And they still preempted local governments from issuing their own orders, just creating a vacuum. So, for example, although the governor in Iowa didn't issue statewide stay at home order, she and the attorney general there um, informed localities that they didn't have the authority to close businesses or order people to stay at home. So, another way this has played out also is that we've seen states go further to punish localities that aren't compliant. So, if you're following the news, you might have seen, for example, that in Georgia, the governor sued the mayor of Atlanta when she enacted a mandatory masking rule and that prevented it from going into effect. Um, in Florida, Governor DeSantis ultimately allowed localities to issue mask mandates, but but the executive orders there prevent localities from enforcing them or for collecting fines for other COVID violations. And we're seeing as vaccination efforts are underway that there's also this state-local dynamic playing out an opportunity for cooperation and conflict. Um, one last thing that we've seen also is this issue of states using the threat of withholding funding to coerce localities in various ways. And that's played in, in different directions. So for example, in Nebraska, the governor warned localities that they wouldn't receive federal COVID-19 funds if they were imposing masking or other public health rules. And in California, the opposite has happened. Here, Governor Newsom issued a statewide mandatory masking orders, and we had some localities saying they weren't going to enforce the order. And and, Cal and the governor said, well, if you're not complying with these minimum statewide standards, then you're not going to get the, you're going to be ineligible for the $2.5 billion in state aid that, that we have for local governments here. So that has also played out in other states, Illinois, New Mexico, North Carolina, etc. We've seen this issue of threatening to cut funding or withhold funding or, or take legal action. So Sabrina, can I stay with you for a minute and just talk a little bit more about um, what are some of the effects that preemption is having? Like, can you talk even more so about kind of the racial, racial, socioeconomic and other inequities that you're seeing? Because Kim, I want to hear from you in terms of thinking about how do we move from response to recovery? But I'd like, Sabrina, for you just to kind of pull out a little bit more of the examples of how this is really targeting, for example, some of the, the how it's perpetuating some of the inequities we're seeing play out at the local level. Sure. So, um, you know, I've said this already, I'll say it again, but within within the context of COVID and more broadly, preemption is most often standing in the way of governments that want to develop innovative solutions. They want to advance health equity, improve health and well-being, and they are not able to. And um, I will sort of divide the answer to your question into two categories. One is like the public health response directly to the pandemic. And one is around preemption affecting the social determinants and structural determinants of, of health. So when we're talking about COVID-19 specifically and preventive measures to, to reduce the spread, we're seeing tons of tons of stark racial and socioeconomic disparities, which, you know, I'll point out are often directly attributable to racism, other forms of structural discrimination. And this preemption in that context is, is almost certain to make things worse. So 
and that's particularly true because we know that health status, including the existence of things like pre-existing conditions that make make outcomes worse with respect to COVID-19, are really tied to zip code. And they can vary drastically geographically from one place to another. So when states are interfering with localities, tailoring their response, it, it, it is worsening that problem. And state governments we've seen have even interfered with local efforts that are explicitly intended to counter COVID-19 related inequities. So I mentioned vaccines. Well, Texas recently threatened to reduce Dallas's tax, uh, vaccine supply if local leaders didn't rescind the plan they'd come up with to prioritize vaccinations in predominantly communities of color. So when we're talking about the broader social and structural determinants of health, preemption is also likely to create or worsen inequities. So governments at all levels have adopted emergency policies around things like that Kim had mentioned, paid sick leave, tenant protections, broadband access, economic supports like increased benefits, employment benefits, nutrition benefits, you name it. But once the pandemic goes away um, and these temporary policies expire, what's going to happen is we're going to be left in the, in the environment that we were in before, where across many of these policies, many, many states already preempt localities from taking action. And that means that the same underserved communities that have been disproportionately harmed throughout this pandemic will, again, be unable to take, a- take action to protect their health and economic security. Um, so, you know, essentially what it means is that, that millions of people, many of whom are from communities of color and low-income communities, are being excluded from the opportunities and health benefits that these laws would provide both now and in, in, in the longer term. But I do want to just point out that, as I've mentioned on the flip side, there, there is the potential for targeted preemption to promote fairness and equity. So, you know, we see this in COVID-19 when, when local laws or local government officials want to stand in the way of an effective response. They don't want a testing site in their neighborhood or in their city or a quarantine site. And there, there is a role for the state government to step up in there or to set a baseline, like I said, statewide state home orders. Um, but I think, you know, we're being reminded the overwhelming majority of preemption laws are a coordinated assault on, on political power of, of marginalized communities of color, low-income workers, other marginalized groups. Um, but inequities come from all levels of government. So, so we see that play out in, in both ways. Thank you so much, Sabrina. So Kim, with that context in mind, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on as we move from response and seeing how it's been used both positively and negatively in a collaborative way, but also in a negative and kind of detrimental way, what things should we keep in mind? What should people and policymakers be keeping in mind as we move from response to recovery with regard to preemption? So I, I want to take this in a couple of ways, but one of them is, is to really look at the huge slate of uh, uh, bills that are before legislatures right now that would limit local public health authority. Um, and I think that it is important to remember almost half the states have sort of measure before them that would restrict the ability of public health officials to take the steps that are needed to, to mitigate this uh, pandemic. So you have everything from Missouri where they are looking at a con- completely stripping the county authority of any ability to issue orders, regulation, anything, to you know Montana, which any uh, local authority, public health authority that issues a rule has to have it okayed by an elected official. And so it is a broad range of, of limitations um, and many of them having to do with limiting the authority of public health experts. And what this can have and will have is a lingering effect to go to Sabrina's point. One of the things I think we need to be mindful of is all these measures that appear to be about emergencies and public health existing uh, conditions are going to linger and have lasting effects on authority and powers of local health departments. The other thing to remember is we did a study with 
with uh, the Urban Institute that looked at what we call the big chill. Okay, so we saw this in effect before the, we really see it. So in states where there was a long history of preemption, um, the fact that there has been this, you know, this conflict between state and localities has made localities less likely to um, ordinances impose orders that would actually help improve local health because they're afraid the state will pound. And remember at a time as we go into recovery, localities are going to need money, right? Who can money in many? It's the state. And so they don't want to pick a fight or get on the wrong side of the state because they need the money to recover. So we're going to see a reluctance of local authorities to challenge the state. What we also see is, you know, there there are steps that can be taken, um, you know, to, you know, there's always court action. There, there are some, actually, as, as uh, Sabrina, some laws that will strengthen local authority of, of um, you know, public health officials, not many, but there are some that at least give them some sort of autonomy. I do think that the other thing we're going to be looking at is the ability of federal and, lo- and local uh, levels of government to work together in ways they haven't been able to do in the previous administration. You know, so our hope and prayer is like if there is a federal, you know, uh, if there is a federal paid sick day bill, we don't have to worry about paid sick day preemption anymore or emergency paid sick days orders. And so there is, you know, the reason to be full going forward. It's really important to remember that what these lawmakers are deciding right now will have an effect. And for the most part, they will be negative effects on people of color. On and on. So just in closing, what are the kind of key recommendations that you would have, um, Kim and Sabrina, as, again, people and policymakers and advocates are thinking about the role that preemption can play? Are there any particular recommendations for action? So I think, you know, I'll jump in. I, you know, clearly there is an effort, I think, to really work with your congressional delegation. There are opportunities that did not exist before January 20th, 2021. Um, and so I think looking at those kinds of policies that would really help, whether it's broadband, paid stick, as mentioned earlier, housing, eviction, well, eviction moratorium has been incredibly important in terms of keeping people at home when these staying in a pandemic. So those kinds of things. I think that getting engaged in, in actually lobbying or working your legislature, may, helping them understand the long-term consequences of what they're looking at when they think it's a, sh- a short-term emergency response. It's not. It will have long. Uh, Sabrina, I don't know if you want to jump in and add anything to that. No, I was just to build off what you what you just said. I think the, of particular interest is that there's many things of particular interest. It all is. But the, the, an emerging issue that I, I would say folks should keep an eye on is this redefining of public health authority and at what level and with what at what brand at what level it's not just about levels of government it's also about which branch of government which is you know a little outside preemption but we're talking about who has the power to make decisions here so it's the same the parallel issue is is going to be really important to watch and pay attention to because like all of these these all of these things we're talking about they could have long really long lasting effects i would say one thing that's encouraging that we're starting to see in lectures um is that people recognize how important broadband is and access to internet. And so we are starting to repeal bills. And we ask you, you know, if you're where it's preempted and 22 states have some form of, of block obstacle to municipal broadband development, really, I mean, there has never been a time when it's more important um, to be have, have access to the internet. Um, and I mean, that's what happened. Look at ha- what has happened to telemedicine during the pandemic. I mean, even just in a public health, you know, uh, context, really important. So these repeal efforts are something we should also really support. I think one thing, oops, one last thing that I, I will say is that I think similarly, people are grasping sort of the role of local government in a way that they may not have before.
for because they're seeing what it's doing happen on a daily basis. And I, that could cut in both directions, I think, but, but I think that represents both an opportunity and a challenge. Mm-hmm. And what I'm also hearing is just understanding what is preemption, how it can, it like what it, what it can be used for, that it can be used for good. It also can be used to harm and get in the way and just to keep um, educating people and understanding what are the ways around it or how can we work with this doctrine as we're going forward. Um, well, I want to thank my guests so much for being here today and sharing your knowledge and your wisdom with us. We really appreciate it. I want to thank everyone else who are, are all of our listeners today. Um, the briefings, as a reminder, are posted at noon every Tuesday and Thursday, and you can find them at Public Health Law Watch YouTube channel or posted on Twitter at PHLawWatch, hashtag COVID Law Briefing. You can also use that hashtag for any questions or comments that you have in response to the briefing. The shows are archived by the Week in, in Health Law podcast at www.twihl.com. Our COVID-19 law and policy briefings are produced by Faith Kalik and Bethany Saxon. We'll see you next time. Please stay safe. Thanks again.